Welcome to episode 50 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with performance coach Exos, Brett Bartholomew. Hi guys, welcome to episode 50 of the Pacing Performance Podcast. So really excited to bring you episode 50 today. Um, it's been a long journey from episode one. Hopefully a lot of things have got um, a lot better. So today we speak to Brett Bartholomew. Uh, it's a really, really good episode with Brett and I'm so glad that I got him on for episode 50 because I think there's so much to learn. So in the episode we cover core training, we cover the EXO's philosophy and that how that fits in with Brett's own philosophy. Um, at the end, we also discuss the importance of coach health, which is, I think, a really good discussion and I think something that needs to be discussed a hell of a lot more. So today's sponsor for the podcast is, again, Train With Push. So again, a massive thank you to Train With Push for getting on board. And rather than a little review that I normally do or have done in the last couple of podcasts, I think the best thing for me to do is forward you on to their blog. And there's a really nice post from Mladen Jovanovic on the future of velocity-based training and in particular Push. So I was speaking to the guys at Push over the last couple of days and they were talking to me about how they want to take things forward as a company and the, the, um, the development of machine learning. And Mladen really touches on this and, uh, and gives a really nice insight into how he thinks, uh, thinks velocity-based training will move forward in the future. So don't forget, you can get 10% off a push band if you're a US listener. If you go to trainwithpush.com and put in the code PACYPERFORM10, that will get you 10% off a push band. If you're a UK listener, go to strengthandconditioningeducation.com, put in PACYPERFORM10 and that will get you £10 off a push band. So get involved in the offer. So episode 50 also marks the creation of the Pacey Performance webinar series. So really excited to bring this and it came about after speaking to Alex Natera and how he presented his podcast in kind of a case study format. And I think the thing that's missing out there is that real hardline information with this is what we did in our setting. These are the results that we got and this is how it informed our practice in the future. So every month I'm going to bring you a webinar that's going to be hosted through paceyperformance.co.uk and it's going to involve top practitioners from around the world presenting in that case study format. So first up in the webinar series, I'm really, really excited to hear from Dan Baker. So Dan's going to present on the long-term planning of training with an emphasis on the resistance training plan and it's going to be a case study from the Brisbane Broncos from 2006 to 2013. So it's going to take place on Sunday the 11th of October at 10am British summertime. But don't worry if you're from elsewhere in the world and you are probably sleeping at that time. If you sign up, you're going to get two links. You're going to get one link, which is the live webinar. So you can tune in at Sunday, on the Sunday 11th at 10 o'clock. But you'll also get a link to a recording of the webinar. So you can listen to and watch that anytime in the next seven days 
as many times as you want. So Dan's presentation is gonna be obviously visual because it's a webinar. So you will get the slides from Dan's presentation if you register for the webinar. What you won't get is the, the data that he's gonna present, just for obvious reasons. But it's gonna be a great hour with Dan. So there's gonna be an hour presentation and there's gonna be 15 to 20 minutes of questions from all attendees that you can fire them over to Dan. So if you do want to book, it's gonna be $14.99, which converts to 23 American dollars and 33 Australian dollars. So if you do wanna book on, go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash webinars. On there, there will be exactly what's gonna happen on the, uh, on the morning of the event, all the links to book and all the information basically that you need. So it'd be really great to see you there. I think there's there's been other opportunities like this from various people and the cost is absolutely minimal for the kind of things you're gonna hear from um, presented by Mr. Dan Baker. So enjoy the chat with Brett, get over to paceperformance.co.uk, get on the webinar, I'll speak to you soon. Okay, hi guys, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we have Brett Bartholomew on the line. So a couple of weeks ago, I put out a, a, a Twitter message asking people who they'd like to see on the podcast or hear on the podcast, and Brett's name came up numerous times, so we had to get him on. So just before we get going, just want to thank Brett for his time, taking some time out in the middle of his day. So I thank Brett for his time and just ask him to give us a little bit of an introduction on his background, his education, and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Brett. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure, Rob. Um, yeah, so background education, I started uh, at Kansas State University and got my undergraduate degree in kinesiology. They had a great program down there, and so spent some time down there. And uh, once I had graduated from that, I had started my internship at what was then Athletes Performance, or now Exos. Uh, so I had packed some bags and talked people into uh, an opportunity that had originally told me no about a thousand times. And uh, went down to Florida and, and did that. Um, that led to a volunteer position at the University of Nebraska, which for any of your listeners that may not know, um, that's where Boyd Epley pretty much started uh, much of the formalities of this profession in the 70s. And the Husker Power Program was a, a very big piece in terms of the innovations that happened early on within our field, especially in, in the United States. So wanted to go learn from them. I always kind of looked at them as the Harvard Law of Strength and Conditioning, whether people agree with that or not, is, uh, of course, up to their own experience. After that, I uh, went to graduate school. Uh, I didn't have any previous desires to go back to school, but an opportunity presented itself where I could pretty much coach full-time and, and get my master's degree paid for. So wanted to take advantage of that and ended up getting a master's degree in essentially uh, motor learning. It was exercise science, but uh, emphasis on motor learning and motor skill development while also coaching. Uh, I was a head strength coach for about eight Olympic sports there, uh, men's and women's teams of all different sports. And then I was an assistant for football and basketball. And then long story short, ended up uh, back at Exos down in the Florida location, working with a lot of tactical population, youth, uh, uh, general population as well. And then that uh, started to evolve into a position in Arizona where I currently work, where I spearhead our NFL program as well as our UFC program. 
and uh, then Moonlight on the side with our uh, Major League and Minor League Baseball Development Program. So that's where I'm at now. Cool. So what do you mean by tactical population? Yeah, so uh, military special forces, okay. so Marine, Marines, Navy, Air Force, uh, everything involved with special forces with the United States military. Uh, was heavily involved with that for a while in terms of going around to different bases, uh, serving operators that would come to our location in Florida. So uh, a, a wide range of both educational and coaching-based uh, interactions and responsibilities with them. Cool. So yeah. the, the, the um, NFL guys that you work with, what, what time are you, what time of year are you in now? Is you coming up to coming to the season or coming to preseason? Yeah, so they're they're at camp with their teams now. So my job with them is done now. It's an interesting thing with the uh, the new collective bargaining agreement that took place uh, around 2010 2011 that only leaves um, strength coaches on NFL teams about five weeks to develop their guys, and so it severely limited the amount of time that these guys could uh, spend with their teams in the off season, uh, and so typically what happens is we'll have guys that will roll in anywhere from January or February through uh, April until they go to what are called organized team activities, OTAs or mini camps with their, with their club. And they'll spend about five weeks with them, depending on, you know, if, they, if they're a rookie veteran, uh, the, the position type, what have you. And then they'll come back uh, for a short stint prior to actual training camp. So that's usually about a three to five week phase, depending on uh, the athlete and, uh, if they want to spend some time with family and, and their own individual schedule. And so uh, that then will train them up to training camp where they go back to their club. So basically what that says is, you know, since their team strength coaches only have five weeks to prepare them, obviously that's not really ideal for the, the type of sport and, and that long of a season. You know, they'll get started in, in August with preseason games and play all the way through January or February if they go through the Super Bowl. And uh, so we kind of become uh, an, an, uh, an assistant strength coach by nature to their teams because we've got to make sure that they're, they're well-developed and they're ready to go because guys can't – they don't have the ability to just kind of, you know, rest around, get fat, get out of shape, and then, you know, rely on five weeks to get them going again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the strength coaches from the teams don't have any say in what you do? They're not allowed to have a say? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, uh, no, the, we're separate entities. That being said, you know, there are relationships that exist um, between myself and strength coaches with other uh, teams where we have similar, you know, uh, thought processes or philosophies. So they feel comfortable sending their guys to me. And, you know, I have a sense of what they're expected to do with their team. So uh, communication can take place certain times a year, but uh, there's also times of the year, to your point, Rob, where no, I can't reach out to them and, and talk to them directly. But usually that's not needed you know and, and they, you know they know their guys benefit from doing some different stuff in the offseason they're with them year round and so if their guys can go out and learn a couple different things and and get out there that's you know they're just happy that most of them are doing something organized as opposed to going to a 24-hour fitness or you know just you know playing hoops or doing something unorganized so uh, there is a balance there and there's a mutual trust and respect that needs to take place but no they don't they don't have control over what we do just like we don't have control over what they do Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question. So are, are some guys in the NFL in, in this period just doing their own thing, going to the, like you say, 24-hour gym and kind of running their own program? 
Yeah, I mean, I w- <laughs> not during this time of year, but, you know, during earlier during in the year. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. During certain times of year, sure, there's going to be players that, you know, obviously invest more heavily in their in their training and, and want to seek out a professional and continue to go learn. And then there's going to be guys that, you know, instead of training, maybe they just go work out. You know, they shoot some hoops and they do some stuff to keep their body maybe looking right. But now obviously there's a big difference between that and, and phys- true physical preparation or performance. So, we, you, you hope that, you know, as a team strength coach, and that's a, a, a very small uh, assorted few of, of your guys, you know, generally you're going to want to try to guide them to stay around as long as they can per the uh, NFL rules and mandates. Otherwise, you're going to try to give them a little bit of a recommendation in terms of somebody that you know or trust to go see. And my job, Rob, is to be the guy that they uh, know or trust and, and go see so I can help them out. Absolutely. And, here, and so, so the payment that they pay themselves, it's all privately kind of funded. In terms of Exos? In, 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 term, no, in terms of the athlete um, using your facility, using you, using your, you know, everything. Is that, do they pay themselves or do the clubs pay? No, 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 they'll pay themselves. Okay. So again, you, yeah, you attract a certain kind of clientele that, you know, know that this is an investment, which is good, you know? And so um, that's one nice thing is we do get guys that typically come in and they're not here to lollygag. They're paying too much money, you know? Yeah, and so yeah, uh, when they come in here, sure, you're always going to have different personalities, ju- just like you will in any sport. Um, but essentially, you're going to have guys that are here ready to work because they just pay too much not to. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I just want to... Um... Go into the the kind of Exos philosophy a little bit. Obviously, you've you've got plenty of experience from working there in uh, a couple of different times. So, I just want to talk to us about the the Exos philosophy as a whole and how your personal philosophy kind of fits in with that. Yeah. So, I think you know the big thing is our philosophy is is very much you know based on principles, not methods. And you hear that a lot, right? But the thing is, is uh, it's, it's all encompassing. Everybody knows that our field changes a lot and uh, we have to stay on top of the ever evolving nature of it. So, you know, you walk into an Exos, you're not going to see some, you know, uh, very odd kind of new age exercises. We're squatting, we're deadlifting, we're cleaning, we're sprinting. Uh, you know, we do try to keep a, a sound movement based approach with things and where, you know, where everything, we don't look at exercises, we just look at human movements, right? And that's, I think that was a newer kind of concept in the early 2000s. I think now that's, that's pretty much the norm, or at least you'd like to think it is. But most people in the know understand that, you know, you squat, you hinge, you push, you pull. And uh, the big thing that I think is different is not just the training-based philosophy, um, you know, in the weight room, but it's how we address the movement outside, how we break down uh, the skills in terms of acceleration, speed, multi-directional movement, uh, deceleration. And then not only that, but the communication aspect of it. When I, when I first came here, that was one of the first things that I really learned is that, <clears throat> you know, we want to do unite people's purpose with our process. And you can only do that when you communicate well. And everybody here was always so purposeful and methodical with the words they chose and the way that they spoke. And it just seemed like the athletes really understood it on a different level compared to, you know, when you're in a team setting, sometimes you can get in the habit of just barking orders and kind of just, you know, and sometimes you got to, that's the nature of the time that you have. But there is that element of language is important. You know, language is supremely important. It colors 
uh, you know, kind of the mental pictures that we're trying to impose in their mind. And so that's a big thing that I learned here was the movement side of it in terms of on the field and uh, the communication aspect of it as well. Other than that, man, you know, we're just a group of individuals that wants to get people right and do it in a really ethical and responsible way. So is it is it is the kind of communication side of things something that's actively kind of promoted within Exos, as in you have, you know, meetings about how that actually takes place, or is it from your respective backgrounds? I think it just kind of comes pe- together. Yeah, I think it's just the people, you know, we tend to hire, you know, and we try to fit, hire people that fit with that DNA. Um, so we don't necessarily meet on it. We will talk about it for sure. Everybody will, you know, kind of have those coaching side conversations of, ah, you know, I cued this way today, or I did this, or I said this, and they really got that. Um, I think it's just a thing that, you know, we always talk about it, motivation through education. These people, you need to start with why. And so being able to communicate and break everything down for them, because we always say it, right? Nobody really, nobody, you haven't taught something until somebody's really learned it. So I can have people run cone drills all day long. That doesn't mean that they know shit about how to actually cut and decelerate. But when I deconstruct that drill and I actually break down and describe to them where their body should be, their shin angle should be, their center of mass. And, you know, then they start to really truly understand that and uh, it comes to life in their own mind. So I think that communication piece is always huge and something that probably more people need to pay attention to. Absolutely. So just want to, um, I just want to dig a little bit deeper in the kind of how you break down uh, a skill and how you actually teach that and coach that to a to an athlete. Do you just want to just give a bit more detail in how that process works? Yeah, yeah. So um, a little bit of a, I'll try to narrow down a broad sense. My motor learning background is kind of, I don't chase perfection. I chase, you know, just progress. So if I'm looking at a skill and I want to, you know, regardless of the sport, let's say we're just doing a, a basic deceleration drill or or uh, a cone agility drill. I'll try to reverse engineer that where I'll have somebody sometimes run through the drill in itself and I'll use that as a screen. Now I'll kind of get an idea of, okay, what did they tend to do? How did they take that cut? How did they accelerate through that? How did they transition? And then I'll start to break apart the constituent pieces there. Then I'll talk to them and I'll say, what did you notice about that first transition? And let's say they were getting ready to do a, you know, a drop step. And they're like, uh, you know, I, I pitter pattered too much going into that cut, right? Okay, so let's work on D-cell first, right? So you'll start to reverse engineer it a little bit and have them work on, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15 meter accelerations into a base D-cell. And then you'll start constructing the hip turn out of that, you know, teaching them how to actually push off the lead leg and open up the hips. And, and then you just start to build it on, on one another. It's, it's no different than an architect shows a blueprint for a building. And that's great. The blueprint looks fantastic. Maybe they've even done a 3D monitor, uh, a 3D, uh, model of it, but now you've got to lay the pieces. So that's how I look at it. I think in the past I'd made the mistake, Rob, of, you know, saying, okay, we're going to teach acceleration today. And I'd gone out and I'll teach, you know, wall drills to get them in the perfect position. And then I'll do it with bungees or harnesses. And, you know, I'll take that perfect position we worked on the wall and start making it more dynamic. And then bungees and harnesses lead into sleds and then sleds lead into free. And, and there's a spot for that. There's a spot for that kind of linear blocked method. But there's another time where knowing that movement is random and chaotic, just because you see that that session flows and in your head, it works nicely to focus on posture, pattern, and power doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to connect with the athlete the same way. 
So that's when I started evolving into, okay, let's have an athlete perform something. That way it gives him context. So when I tell him or her that we need to work on this aspect of it, it's not me just being a guru and saying that and asking for blind faith and trust. They actually felt that they sucked on that transition or cut or that it could be better. And then they're along with me on the journey to help make that better. So it sounds complicated. It's really not. You know, you could do it easily in the team setting, and we did as well, where, you know, you have you have several rotating uh, stations where, let's say, one station is a W drill or a simple four-cone reaction drill, and that's that's the most advanced method, right? And then your other three stations all take pieces of that. Maybe one works on D-cell, maybe works on one works on um, acceleration into a different kind of cutting technique, and then another one works on the plyometric uh, uh, components involved with that movement skill and, and just movement in general, right? So you could break it down into three separate components of it. You could break it down into one working on your posture pattern and, and power principles. There's a lot of ways, and I think that that is where you start to differentiate yourself as a coach is it's not just about having the colors uh, that you can use to paint that picture. It's knowing how to blend them together. So at the end, Rob, then you can say, all right, guys, we worked on this skill at the beginning. As you went to all these stations, you learned a different component of movement skills, whether it's D-cell, acceleration, or even ground-based force production with the plyos. Do you guys understand how everything you do on the field or the pitch or the court or the ice translates into that, right? And that's what you've got to do with these athletes, I think, is you've got to help them. And sure, there's going to be some that don't give a shit, but they're not going to care regardless, right? So somebody could listen to this and be like, oh, that's nice. You know, my guys don't care. We just got to work. Well, there are some guys that care. So you need to start looking at breaking your athletes down into archetypes and think, hey, how are you communicating with all of them? Because if you're all assuming they're dumb kids or if you are all assuming they're crusty veterans that don't really, you know, don't really care about the nuances of this, you're missing the boat on some of them that really do want to know. Mm -hmm. So how what's the response been like from how he started to what you do now from the athlete's point of view? Yeah, well, I'll still, work, I'll still do both depending on the athlete, you know. So there are some athletes that will respond better to that kind of linear method, especially if they're kind of a very technical-minded or uh, mechanically-minded guy where they've got to see that natural progression. But the response for some of the athletes that are a bit more uh, just have a competitive nature that drives them is they love it uh, because they see, man, like you just showed me a very distinct way that even if I was good at that drill, one, how I can get better at it by looking at each piece of that movement puzzle, so to speak, as a different part and its constituent parts, or if they weren't good at it, it can really help them break out why. I mean, isn't this why the FMS was such a big deal is people would say, okay, it's not perfect, but it's a screen. And I can see that that guy sucks with load on his back because look, at he can't even, he's a clear one on the overhead squat and the movement. And so this is the same thing. A guy may not know why he can't do, he or she can't do this drill uh, with the fluidity that they want. But then when you start to break out the points of that, uh, whether it was them getting stuck on the uh, D cell or whether they don't have enough power on the acceleration, or maybe they just don't have great, uh, you know, uh, multi-directional movement skills of keeping a low center of gravity. So that messes up their transition on the cut or they take an extra step. It helps them identify it. And that has definitely gotten a good response in terms of the athletes I've, I've worked with is because it makes your purpose 
it connects with what they want to get better at too. And they're, they're along for the ride with that rather than just being a piece of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So just the, the next thing I want to talk about, um, the kind of thought for it came because I was watching some English Premier League games uh, over the weekend and it showed you the guys doing the warm-up. The warm up. I can't remember who it was, Manchester City or something. Yep. And they had the guy in the middle, they get the guys around, they all the bands out, they all had the kind of hop and holds, that kind of thing. And then they cut back to the studio and there was an ex-manager in there who was maybe... I don't know, 50, 60. And I just thought, I wonder what he thinks <laughs> watching that from when he managed and played maybe 30 years ago. And I just wanted to get to know kind of how things, uh, movement prep-wise, how you do that at, at Exos and, and how that's kind of um, kind of evolved over time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to address first things first, I think one thing is really important to know is we like to imagine ourselves now, you know, so advanced that we have the best, you know, oh, our, our movement prep and our, by ourselves, I don't mean Exos, I mean all of us in this community, you know, um, oh, we got movement prep down and can you believe what they used to do back in the day? And we think we have all the answers. And the reality, some of the shit they did then was great. And some of the stuff we may do now might be a little bit of overkill. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think a lot of people, it's like this idea of, okay, We've got to do pre-gen, and you've got to do your correctives, and you've got to warm up. It's like, did you just call something pre-gen? What is this now? You know, it's like every week there's something new. Where in reality, you get somebody doing, and again, this I'm speaking in general terms, so nobody needs to jump out of their chair. But you get somebody doing some solid jumping jacks, body weight squat, multi-directional lunges, some push-ups, a few sprints, a few hops or bounds in, in different planes. By and large, you're going to be ready for just about whatever you need to be ready for. You know, and there, there definitely is a fine line and it depends on the population, the people and, uh, the place that you're in. But, um, I think it's evolved from just people being able to really look at readiness. And I don't mean the type that we're monitoring with Omega Wave and stuff, but actually saying, Hey, are we actually preparing the body to play? Um, is there a real specific theme to this or are we just doing a bunch of stuff haphazardly thrown together? You know, I look at it, the difference between like, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a menu. You, you can't just throw stuff on there. Otherwise nobody will know what your restaurant serves. It's all got to have it. If you're a bar, if it's bar food, all right, make it consistent with that. If it's Italian, you probably don't want to have tacos there. Um, so your warm up, anybody should be able to look at that and say, okay, you're clearly getting ready for a weight room session, a general movement session, acceleration emphases or multi-directional emphases. Um, and, and you should be able to tell by that, right? If, uh, what do they say? They, um, uh, they say that, uh, you know, a sheep herder should smell like sheep. And I think it's the same thing with your program design. Like it should be pretty self-evident what you're doing if you do it right. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just going back to what you said at the start about your, your kind of your time that you have with your NFL guys, yep. I just want to kind of dig a little bit deeper in how you, with a such a short space of time that you have them is how do you prioritize what you do in that time, obviously with the guys paying and with time being so precious? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I, so just like any strength coach, I, I periodize it out where I look at the intensification across stages of development, knowing that 
you know, prior to them leaving and, and going to OTAs, the weight room stuff is going to be the most uh, intense in terms of doing more maximal strength or power development. Um, then they usually, when they're with their teams, the, that five-week span, many of the coaches uh, and their teams are just doing a, a general kind of preparation phase, um, you know, where, again, it's, it's, it's almost kind of introductory. And the teams are smart to do that because they don't know what their guys have been doing. You know, it's not that the teams are being lazy. They just don't know what their guys are being doing or have been doing and, and they need to see. But from my standpoint, I always try to make sure that the guys that train with me, when they go into that with their team, uh, the coach raises his eyebrows and thinks, okay, you guys, this should be a cakewalk for you. And then, so it serves as kind of an unload for them too, because after I get hard and heavy with them, they'll go do basically a general prep program uh, they may take a week off or so, and then they'll come back to me, and then we start getting right back into strength, power, power endurance type themes, depending on the guys we get. So the interesting thing is I can have very different guys in, in June and July than I had in uh, you know March or April. Just because they came here at the beginning of the year or it doesn't mean that they're going to come back, and that that's just people, you know, their individual proclivities. Like I have one guy that comes in, and Don Terry Poe with the Kansas City Chiefs, Every year for the past four years, I know he's going to train with me February, March, and April. And then he goes back home for June and July so he can see his family. Then he works out with his college strength coach there. Uh, conversely, I have another guy that plays for the Saints that I will never see him in the spring. He's got, you know, he'll visit with family. He'll go do his own thing. And, uh, but then he always comes in June and July. So it, it kind of just depends where the players live, their timing, their availability. But the, the bottom line is, is I look at the two phases I got to get them ready for, which is OTAs and then obviously training camp. And those, the, uh, the phases that I designed prior to those are the most intense phases. So just like anything else, but I always try to get pretty competitive. And it's my goal that whenever they go back to their team, their team thinks, what the hell have you guys been doing? So keep it simple, but also just, I think, simple things done savagely. Mm -hmm. Cool. So. You're getting people at different stages. Obviously, physically, they're coming at different stages. Yeah. So how, how are you finding uh, the kind of ground from which to build your program? What's the yeah. first thing you do when they come in? It's got to be adaptable. So one of the first things that I do when I'm designing the program is all the time, you know, whether I'm programming a bench press, a squat, you know, a deadlift, what have you, I give them options of that movement. So because to your point, I don't know – you know, how many guys are going to have shoulder injuries? You know, how many guys haven't been training? How many guys uh, may not like, uh, you know, uh, straight bar bench press? And, and at that level, listen, when you work in the college side of things in, in United States, you know, guys are going to do what you're going to program. But when these guys, you get guys that are eight, nine years in the NFL, their bodies are pretty beat up. You got to give them a little bit of autonomy. And at the end of the day, who cares as long as they're doing that movement with the right intensity? So the first thing I do is always kind of, I start them on a general program. We'll maybe do that for two weeks. It's a very short block just to get an idea of what I'm working with, right? And then I have a, a series of programs that I'll, I'll uh, kind of build out after that, whether I say, okay, well, these guys are pretty fit. We can bump them into a more aggressive strength program already, or man, these guys are already pretty strong, but a lot of them lack that elasticity, rate of force production, or power. Maybe we need to bump them to this. So I use two weeks, as, two to three weeks as kind of an assessment, and then I'll build it out from there. And then as I alluded to earlier, they all have a choice. So if it's bench press, it'll say, you know, dumbbell or barbell. If it's squat, it would be two kettlebell, front squat, back squat, or safety squat. And then I just start to build out an adaptable model so that no matter 
where they are in their development, it's very easy to kind of guide them along because one of the unique things we face here is I'll have 25 to 30 guys, but it's just myself and an intern. Periodically throughout the year, I might have another coach that comes out and uh, assists me depending on staff availability, but I've got to be able to run the program just by myself. So it's got to be pretty no-nonsense, uh, again, basics, but done in an intelligent way. Mm-hmm. So is it, there's no other coaches in Arizona that do that, do that job that you're doing? Uh, within Exos or in Arizona in general? W- within Exos. Oh, uh, no, not with the NFL. So we all kind of have our own niche. Um, mine is mine is football and fighters at, at this point. And, uh, you know, our other coaches will be running groups of their own. So how it typically works, and, you know, it's, a, it's good that you asked that because I think there's a lot of, you know, misconceptions out there, is we'll have groups run from about 6 to 8 p.m. So we have an early morning guy that does kind of general population. He'll run groups at like 6, 7 uh, a noon group and then uh, an after an evening group, you know, for people that get off work. Um, I'll take football players. We have another coach that does uh, college athletes, another coach that does baseball. So um, like I all typically work uh, the eight o'clock. So I'll typically have an eight, 10, one and three o'clock group, you know, but there may be another group running at eight as well. So anyways, you get two to three coaches that are working the same kind of time frame. And that, that generally leaves one coach per group with maybe the assistance of an intern. So definitely a situation, I mean, in Exos, Arizona in general, we only have four coaches and there's hundreds of athletes that'll come through the door. So you're coaching your butt off with, uh, you know, minimal additional staff support, uh, you know, uh, much of the year. Uh, so that's one reason the integrated model works well though, because then, you, you know, you have that communication to be able to draw upon when you are short-staffed, at least everybody knows what everybody's doing. Awesome. So just moving on again, um, when I was writing these out, actually, that I, that I forwarded to you, I, I was reading a, a couple of things at the same time as you do. And one was a, a Greg Knuckles article about core training about and how it how increasing his amount of specific core training, how that uh, helped, his, helped his squat. And I just wanted to get your opinion and your thoughts on, on core training itself and how you do that at Exos. What I've learned is that I really don't know shit about that topic (laughs) And from the standpoint that I I think I've gone through a lot of evolutions, you know, when I was younger and I mean younger before I got into this profession. um, Have you ever seen the movie American Psycho? Um, I haven't. Okay. Well, obviously know what it is. If, yeah, it's going to be a bad joke then. But yeah, okay. <laughs> Christian Bale in the movie is just, you know, basically a nutcase. And every night he does like thousands of crunches. I've been that guy. Okay. I did that. You know, I saw my first Rocky movie when I was like 14. And I'm like, that's it. Crunches and push-ups every night. Um, so I, I'd been that guy that, you know, had had done flexion early on. Um, I think I've always kind of had, struggled with some back issues. And so, you know, once once people started talking more about, you know, functional training in terms of, hey, you know, planks, bridges, you know, more uh, anti-rotation stuff, I jumped on that pretty hard. Um, but then you start looking at it and you're like, yeah, well, I, I get that the body isn't necessarily meant to flex all the time, but it, it, it still flexes. And I feel like we've got to, you know, train everything. And Nebraska taught that really well, where they didn't look at just rotation or, you know, flexion and anti, uh, you know, uh, anti-flexion and just stability or anything. What they looked at is they said, hey, listen, the torso, you have to train rotation, flexion, extension. They even talked about abduction and adduction because, again, they looked at the whole 
uh, like trunk and torso, which they considered the hips a part of that. Um, they looked at nine different components of how you could do your torso training. And, you know, that really has always made the most sense to me because I think any time I got rid of any kind of flexion or even when I went through the bout of, you know, I do enough push-ups, pull-ups, squats, heavy bench presses, heavy presses, I don't need to do any of this. Inevitably, my back would creep up on me again. And I'd say, okay, well, I get that you're getting a lot of organic quote unquote core strength through these, but I also feel like you need something to support that a bit. And so I feel like I've gone every round, I've gone I'll just do the main lifts, uh, you know, do the nine different types of uh, torso work. Now let's just dial that back and let's really work on propulsive rotational movements, anti-rotation movements and, and, and different other kinds of forms of stability. And I think where I sit now is probably a little bit more like Greg. I think that, listen, you've got to do the meat and potatoes for sure. And I think the majority of your quote unquote, again, core work will take care of itself. If, if you're learning how to reflexively stabilize and brace and, and do the things you want to do. But I also think that there's a place for, you know, reverse crunches or, you know, straight leg sit-ups and different get-up variations and even hanging knee raises and uh, definitely rollouts and all that. You just got to make sure that, again, you're budgeting correctly. It's kind of like, you know, it becomes silly if that's taken much more than yeah, 10 to 15 minutes, if that, you know, like I think I, I, I maybe spend probably five, 10 minutes on it in terms of formal core work. Uh, of course, that's different if you're considering waiters, walks, farmers, carries, saying So I just think that we get into these exclusionary forms of, of thinking. And I think the reality is the body's pretty dynamic and it's functioned a long time doing some goofy shit. And so, you know, let's just train it, you know, and let's not overthink it and just understand that you probably want to have a little bit of a balanced approach. Uh, and I think the guy that does no flexion is just as bad as the guy that only does flexion. And, you know, that's just a brief example. Does, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So you're seeing obviously a lot of guys come through your doors, which have had a lot of influences going around the country, even around the world. What, what are you, what influences are you seeing? Are you seeing a similar thing where people have kind of been around the block with regards to, um, flexion, no flexion. What are you seeing come back now with the guys that come through your doors? Yeah, I think, you know, it hasn't really been a hot topic, the guys in our doors, to be honest with you. Um, but I think most people, quote unquote, in the know is everybody just looks at it as, yeah, I don't know. Do it, you know, it depends on the person. Do a balance of it. Kind of look where you're weak and then look at the nature of the sport and the movement. You know, I think one thing for sure is, people look at uh, training the core in terms of specificity and thankfully people are starting to come to their senses from the standpoint of, you know, we get a lot of baseball folks in here and, and they always say, oh, yeah, you know, it's a rotational sport. What are you doing to train rotation? It's like, yeah, actually not that much other than med ball throws. Your son rotates enough throughout the year. Well, you know, we're working a little bit more stability. And so I think, I think that's the thing, ironically, Rob, that I've seen is people when it looks to at core training of not, People have started to quit following specificity and look at it more as a system, you know, approach in and of itself. We're like, listen, we, we hit a little bit of everything. We try to keep it balanced and, and that's the reality. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you put a lot out, you're very active on Twitter, putting out lots of great information. And I just wondered who, there's obviously a lot of influences going on there. It's not just kind of, um, kind of training influences, a lot of external influences as well. I just wanted to ask you who them guys are and even in the field, even strength and condition itself, who are your kind of go-to guys? I think, um, 
I think one of the, my early influences was when I was in the team setting, I, you know, I had a boss who was incredibly intelligent, but he was, he was really critical. And so this was at a time when not many, not many, uh, teams were sharing their stuff online. And if you did, it was almost kind of like you were opening yourselves up for negative attention. So, you know, we'd be watching what a school was doing at a particular time and he'd come in and be like, Oh, what's this? What's that? Like, I don't got time to do that. I coach, you know, and, but then you started seeing this evolution where people realize that, you know, sunlight is really the best disinfectant in terms of helping people understand the kind of work you do at the place that you, you know, your, your place of employment. And, you know, it's better to put your stuff out there. And it, it really opens up gaps of what would normally be gaps of communication. And so I think, I think sitting there and understanding his point of view to a degree that, yeah, I don't have a bunch of times to make videos, but at the same time, what's my goal in this field? My goal is to, you know, leave a legacy and, and hopefully help others in the field and give them ideas and, and kind of like the all blacks say with their Jersey, leave it in a better place. Um, so I was like, you know what? I don't know if it's going to help anybody, but I'm going to share some shit. And I started doing it and I really didn't think anybody would care less about what I had to say. And people started taking to it. And I think it was just maybe my approach of, I've always kind of been just a no bullshit guy. Like, you know, it's, there's, I don't have any secrets. And if I do, I try to share them, but, um, I'm a, I, I learned from everybody to, ironically, I think the people that influenced me the most, now that I talked about the situation that influenced me the most were people that had nothing to do with this profession. Uh, I look at people like 50 cents. I looked at people like Robert Greene. I looked at people like uh, uh, Richard Branson. I looked at a lot of people that really realized that the key to getting more and more people involved in bettering an area or strengthening a product is through engagement. And regardless of what anybody thinks about what any of those people post, the reality is, is that they were all people that study human nature and knew how to grab people's attention, but in an authentic way where they actually gave them something useful too. You know, and so that started my interest in, in really saying, okay, now, not what can I put out? Cause I know I can send videos of this is the kettlebell swing. This is the squad. You know, this is, I, I wanted to put stuff out that really connected with questions that maybe people had out there. So I took a lot of things that interns asked that other coaches asked or that, you know, I knew that during a more self-conscious part of my early career, I would think and ask. feel like they can always check out my page um, to get that answered without them necessarily feeling like, you know, they have to, they have to go to someone else. It's like, Hey man, like this is, this is something that you may think about. Don't worry yourself over creating the perfect program. Just take notes on, you know, the process along the way and what you can do better. Boom. All of a sudden I got like 20 likes and I'd be like, what? And you know, people just really appreciate those that share. And I think that have nothing to hide. And I promise that's all I try to be. I have nothing to hide. I have no secrets. If it helps, that's awesome. But all I want to do is kind of take uh, uh, what people might be thinking of and, and wondering and what might be a hot topic at the time and, and demystifying it and kind of give people a real world sense of it. Because mm -hmm. one thing that does come across, Brett, is your kind of positivity. No, where, thanks, where, where, where does that positivity come from? Just to love uh, the job? No, no, that would be the, that would be the politically correct answer. I, I certainly do love the job for sure. It came from a man almost losing my life when I was about 15, 16 years old. Uh, after that, I, I learned a couple things real quick is obviously that life is short and, you know, you can't go through it worrying about, you know, what other people think. And really, 
you only get one chance to really create a footprint in this world. And what kind of footprint do you want to leave? You know, I don't, I don't really give a shit if somebody looks at me as the, uh, you know, the master of speed or acceleration. What I want people to look at me at is that dude knew how to get every inch out of everybody he worked with. And it wasn't through screaming or yelling or all this nonsense. It was just, he knew how to connect with that person and he knew how to connect the dots. So uh, I think it's just a love for wanting to leave a positive impact as goofy as that sounds. But when you almost lose your life, man, that that's, that's what you care about doing. And so uh, that's the key there for sure. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. No, it's no problem. Um, so just last but not least, one thing that I wanted to make sure I touched on, especially with the kind of uh, LinkedIn, the positivity stuff is the, um, there was an article on Lee SES, I'm sure you read it about kind of coach health. And so I think it's something that's kind of missed. And there was a friend, Chris Toomes, actually, you might know, I think he's been down, yeah, yeah. down to your place, put something at the weekend about interns in, in college working from kind of five till eight and five till nine, as in 5 a.m. till 9 p.m. And, and I just kind of, it resonated with me because I just think we kind of get it all wrong and I kind of put some uh, messages back and forth with Chris and I just wanted to get your take on the kind of importance of, of coach health as well as our obvious focus on, on athlete health. Yeah, no, you guys, you're spot on, you know, and, you know, shout out like Chris is great. He put some great stuff there and, and I think you're, you're completely right, Rob. We've gotten this wrong for a long time. One of the first books I was ever given when I came into this profession was called First In, Last Out, Lessons of the New York Fire Department. And I worked with a guy that, man, he, his, he was in at 5 a.m. every day. He'd eat his lunch precisely at the same time every day, train every day at the same time. And then he'd, he'd almost try to like stay there every night later than I did. And at that time, we were both graduate assistants. So I get the competitiveness of it. But in him doing that, I think he lost they're, you know, kind of the realistic part of that personality that most people connect with, with that really doesn't have to do with shit being the first one in and last one out. People can say that, oh yeah, that displays passion. That does no, really what that displays at the end of the day is a form of extremism. If you're, if you're just staying there just to stay there, then you're not really being a balanced example of a coach because you see these are the same people and this kid was included. He ended up losing his fiance. I've seen other coaches lose their marriage. You've alluded to it. They lose their health. They become hooked on different kinds of painkillers, energy drinks. And it's like a slow creep. Everybody starts as a graduate assistant or a young coach, like, and they just run on that natural energy. And, you know, they're training and life's great. And I use the facility and I go hard. And then eventually a small thing takes place where maybe they start drinking more coffee or if it's not coffee, it's energy drinks. Or maybe if it's not energy drinks, they find themselves leaving the facility just for small spurts throughout the day just to get out of that environment. And then eventually that becomes their body starts breaking down. They wake up one morning and they don't necessarily want to go to work and they don't know why. Even if this doesn't describe somebody that's listening to right now, there are some others that are listening to it and are like spot on. It's not about first in and last out. It's about working smart and getting out. And who are we to sit here and preach all this bullshit about, you know, hey, get your sleep, pay attention to your stress levels, get your training in, all this. And if we don't do it ourselves, because it's not bullshit, that's what you need. 
And so I think whether you're a coach that doesn't train or you think it's awesome that you get five hours of sleep a night, you know, or, you know, that you go in and you're the most hardcore guy because you wake up at three in the morning and run into work and do the lift with your players. That's all well and good, but nobody remembers that shit. You might get a cool article written about you in the local paper or internet, you know, but at the end of the day, you're going to be remembered by what kind of father or husband you are or, you know, wife or the lady uh, strength coaches that are listening. You're going to get an article. You're going to be remembered for what kind of mentor you are, how, you know, just so coach health is a huge problem. And, you know, Mark Watts and Brian Mann talk about it in the States here, too. You're, you're really you're getting a lot of people that don't really retire either in a, in a great financial state or a great physical state. And it can't be like that. You can't be so focused on upgrading lives at the extent of, you know, downgrading your own. And so it's a, it's a scary thing. And I think that there's going to have to be uh, along the lines with, you know, uh, job opportunities. And I think that comes from just increasing, you know, enhancing our job environment in general, whether it's the stability, whether it's the jobs available, whether it's our pay, you know, and, and all these things, coaches oftentimes get caught up in that. Yeah, this is a service-based industry and, you know, we're, we're called to guide and mentor and lead, but people miss the whole purpose of that. You're not really a worthy mentor if you don't first embody consistently the values that you preach to others. And I think instead of doing that, we've got caught uh, preaching this ideal. And why does it have to be ideal for people that are just athletes? You know, like you're going to be a better teacher if you're a healthier teacher. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to make sure that you're a centered self if you're going to be able to give yourself in the best way to others. And I just think that's got to be communicated to young coaches because that's not how I was brought up with it. And that's not how a lot of people are. You know, you're not taught, you know, you're taught about, hey, what sacrifices are you going to make? What are you going to do? And for sure, You've got to have that to weed out the turds that are in here for free gear, the glory of working with athletes. But you've also got to be able to, once you've got, once you've got guys that you think are pretty switched on, you've got to let them know. Now, listen, I expect you to be an embodiment of the values we preach here. You know, pay attention to your family, take care of yourself, be a great example for these young men and women. Otherwise, there's no place for you here. And I don't know, that's my, that's my rant on that because I think there are a lot of uh, great coaches that unfortunately deal with a lot of health issues, and I've been no stranger to them as well uh, most recently in my career. So you got to be smart. So why do, you th- why do you think that is and why do you think that, that kind of really hardcore, almost like military approach is kind of encouraged a lot of the time? Yeah, that's, there's probably a lot of reasons. The, the one thing I think is just it's the nature of we're a bunch of intense dudes <laughs> in this field. You know, we like weight training. A lot of us that got into it were probably average or slightly above average athletes that, you know, probably didn't make it. But, man, we'd grind and, and we were able to really, you know, give it our best shot through the things that we could control. You can't control your genetics, but we were all kind of weight room uh we all fell in love with sport or the weight room at some point. We wanted to carry that on. And so we have this tremendous amount of intensity and passion. And then we, we naturally seek out these books to expand our knowledge or try to find a way to uh, aim that arrow, so to speak, that we've, we we kind of naturally shoot. And these books happen to be, you know, motivational or military-based books or inspirational-based books or, you know, things that just talk about cultures. And so then we imagine ourselves as, okay, we're the person that has to drive that culture and everybody has to get it. Not everybody has to be like you. There's a lot of people that see the sky differently, no matter where where they come from. And they can embody an ideal and a value. 
and still see it differently than you. You know, it's just kind of like when we talk about neutral posture. Well, it's a neutral posture for somebody that's naturally lordotic isn't going to be the same neutral posture for somebody that, you know, may be uh, just aligned to an ideal uh, degree. And so these people as well, we're just trying to make incremental changes in people's lives. But what we try to do is we try to flood them with as much inf information and passion and all this. And so I think sometimes it just comes back to, you know, stepping outside yourself and understanding what's my ultimate goal here. My goal is to make these kids better, give them an example, you know, or, or lengthen their career or teach them how they can manage this all better. And their way of doing it may not be my way. It may be, you know, this common thread of, all right, we're just trying to get you to take care of your body. I know that I'm the type of guy that's going to go uh, to all ends of the earth to try to do that. But maybe for this guy, it just means him getting a massage once a month, you know? And so I think you got to address behavior change really carefully. And it starts with first understanding the, the message that you send. But long story short, man, I think it's just because we're a very intense kind of breed and we're very passionate. And so we try to inculcate that in other people as quick as possible. And we end up turning on the fire hydrant instead of maybe the, uh, maybe the, you know, the basic kitchen faucet. <laughs> do, do, do you think that's another reason to have influences outside strength and conditioning? So like you said, Richard Branson and learn from these guys and how they deal with the kind of pressure and the, um, the long hours and things like that. Without a doubt, the number one person that I, the number one book I recommend everybody reads, and I could care less if you're in the strength and conditioning hall of fame or you're just starting or you don't even know what, you know, a Turkish getup is, is you need to read the book Mastery by Robert Greene. And in the book Mastery by Robert Greene, he documents and profiles everybody from Charles Darwin to Benjamin Franklin to some that people maybe have never even heard of, but uh, just a, a wide range, even Napoleon Bonaparte's in there. And he talks about all these people that made their own ripple in history and the path they took to get there and, you know, who influenced them and, and what about human nature uh, did they really master, whether it was social awareness or social fluency or empathy or, you know, what made them, what really helped the gears in their head be uh, uh, so switched on at a faster rate than everybody else. And it talks about their journey. And you're going to see so many parallels in your own journey. It talks about one gentleman uh, named Ignaz Semmelweis that is literally the guy that uh, founded the reason why we should all sterilize and wash our hands. And at the time, you know, and I, I talk about this in a presentation I give, at the time people were dying of a disease called childbed fever. You know, one in six or two in six, I can't remember the exact number, women were dying at the hospital and they realized that it was because these doctors were doing the autopsies on people that had childbed fever and then they were going to deliver a baby. Whereas, you know, if a midwife delivered the baby, there was a lower incidence of mortality. So nobody knew why at the time. And this young doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis postulated that I think, you know, we're contaminating them. And I think people should sanitize and wash their hands. But at that time, that wasn't part of the medical kind of orthodoxy. Nobody, there was no sterilization. There was no hand washing. So, you know, people had asked Ignaz, they had said, you know, why don't you make sure and, you know, put this in some journals and find some research to support it or create your own and, and state your case as is the normal process of the time. And Ignaz Semmelweis didn't have a high degree of social intelligence. So instead of doing what was asked of him and forwarding and, and uh, his cause, he started to get angry. And he said, are you kidding me? You're going to have me waste time doing all this when I'm telling you clear as day, this is how you're going to save these lives. I've watched it. I've documented it. 
you're murdering people for every moment you don't do this. And he, he just con he, he continued to get more outrage and vitriolic until the point where they basically, the medical community completely ignored him. He was put in an insane asylum and of all things, died of septicemia. And then 10 years later, Louis Pasteur had proven his work and showed that this guy was right all along, should have washed his hands. And so it's fascinating that somebody can read that and somebody may be a very knowledgeable strength coach or physiotherapist or practitioner of another sort. And, but no matter how they communicate, they may feel like they just can't get through to people. And so then that story highlights the importance of, well, let's take a look at how you communicate, right? Like Ignaz could have very clearly just uh, had a higher degree of emotional intelligence, step back and address that situation in a far different manner. But instead he just got angry and let his passion take over and tried to beat people over the head with it to the point that everybody tuned him out and thought he was insane. And so those are lessons, lessons from the past that continue to play themselves again and again and again throughout the world that we live in are the things that I find is so funny, Rob, that nobody learns from. People will scour medical journals and, and, and strength and conditioning journals, but they don't want to read about social intelligence, human nature, empathy, um, emotional intelligence, all these things that really are responsible for whatever message you have truly getting across or attuned to the populations that you're trying to get them to. And so I, I think the more people can read about emotional and social intelligence, Daniel Goleman's work, Robert Greene's work, Robert Greene's going to come out with a book, I think in the next year or so on that in general. But Mastery is a tremendous book. If you don't read it or you don't stick with it or you think you're above it, I promise you you're missing out. Um, and uh, I'll give you your money back for the copy that you bought if you didn't like it. <laughs> and I think that's why the, the things you put out, on, especially on Twitter and things like that, um, are so valuable because they are coming from so many different influences, influences and you can just you can see that, which is great. So I, I won't keep you much longer. Um, nearly on for an hour now. So just where can people keep us date with you? I mean, you've mentioned Twitter a few times. You're obviously very active on there. Um, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Yeah, I think the best way to probably stay up to date with what's going on is, you know, it's just easy. Uh, if it's not social media, just even a basic Google. It's weird. I, I, I think I Googled myself for the first time ever just to make sure that there was nothing on there that shouldn't have been on. I had a crazy girlfriend in the past, right? So you just got to cover your base. <laughs> uh, no, but I was just, I, you know, and it's crazy. There was stuff that I had no idea that was on there and, you know, I could care, but it does, you know, this podcast will come up on there. Other podcasts will come up on there. So um, I would say that otherwise social media or just reaching out to me directly. I can tell you the worst way to do it is Facebook. Um, I, I use that less and less. And I know a lot of people send me messages on there and I, I really value that and I, I love that you reach out, but I just don't check them often. And so I always never wanted to be viewed as the guy of, oh, I reached out to him and he big leagued me or he never got back to me. <laughs> that, that will never be the case. If I don't get back to you on Facebook, it's because I do not check my messages on there. So Twitter, um, my phone number, uh, you know, I'll give that, uh, I'll give that out. If people want to reach out to me directly on Twitter, I'm, I'm not going to give that out on the radio. Um, but, or just email Brett, uh, it's just B Bartholomew at teamexos.com and uh, those are the best ways man but I'm I'm old school I, I like face to face I like direct communication Skype is great too Brett.Bartholomew1 Brett on Skype is great um, always happy to talk awesome and the uh, the Mike Robertson podcast was excellent by the way that you did oh thank you yeah thank you very much for that I appreciate that it's uh, you guys all you know you and Mike both do a great job of 
you know, with the questions and being so introspective and keyed in with that, man, I, I appreciate all you guys do. And you, uh, you are big parts of helping this profession and the people in it grow by making this information accessible. Cool. Thank you very much for that. Thank really, you, Rob. Really appreciate, appreciate that. Appreciate that feedback, mate. Thank you. Um, so I'll put all them links on the website so people can uh, get easy access to them if they can scribble them down at the time they're listening. Um, so yeah, that's that's it for us. Um, just want to say thanks for your time and uh, we'll keep in touch. Great. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for tuning in to episode 50 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Brett. All links that Brett mentioned in the episode can be found at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 50. Don't forget to get over to the webinar page as well, where you can book onto the Pacey Performance webinar series number one with Mr. Dan Baker. All the information's on there. It'll be a great morning and we'd both love to see you there. We've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks that you'll really enjoy and I will speak to you soon.